is truer blue, be fruitful and multiply. And we began discussing abortion, birth control, and various other issues which are kind of moving in the opposite direction. So today, uh, I want to get back to reproduction and talk about the halachic issues in some of the newer technologies. Some of them are not so new anymore, but uh, what you might call artificial reproduction. Uh, there is an acronym, a lot of these things have abbreviations. Uh, it is called ART, A-R-T, and that simply means Assisted Reproductive Technologies, ART. And uh, these include artificial insemination, these include in vitro fertilization, uh, egg donation, surrogate motherhood, uh, even cloning. And uh, we'll kind of uh, discuss briefly, one can give a whole year of talks on all of these issues, uh, but you know, they, these, uh, they, these, well except for cloning, these technologies are in wide use in the general community and maybe among from people even higher because religious people have even a stronger desire to have children than uh, non-religious. Uh, so one needs to know what halacha says about all of these different things. So let's first uh, talk about a very basic question. If a couple cannot have children in the normal way, are they halachically obligated to engage in fertility treatments? So it's important to, to know that uh, halakhically there is no obligation. When the Torah gives you a mitzvah pru or vu, the Torah says uh, you try to have kids the normal way. If you don't have kids the normal way, then you're exempt. You're not mechuyiv to undergo surgeries or various other things. This is important to know because the truth of the matter is fertility treatments can be normally, enormously draining, particularly for women taking drugs, taking hormones. Uh, it's very expensive, uh, but the more importantly, it's uh, very, very draining, emotionally draining, physically draining. So one has to know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu does not require that people undergo these uh, treatments. Uh, the Torah only requires what is called Kiderech Kol Haaretz, the normal way of having kids. Now, in truth, that's not going to stop the average firm couple, because the average firm couple, uh, even if they're not obligated to do all of this stuff, they will want to do this stuff, so we do have to go on and discuss what are the ramifications. So the first thing I want to talk about is really the lowest technology, the, the lowest tech there is, and it's been around for more than 100 years, so it's not new anymore, and that is simply called artificial insemination. Now, artificial insemination has two types. One is a woman is artificially inseminated with her husband's sperm. And once again, everything has abbreviations. So that's called AIH, artificial insemination with husband. And the other is artificial insemination with donor sperm. And that's abbreviated AID. Now we'll talk about each of these issues. Let's first talk about plain vanilla, the simplest, artificial insemination with husband's sperm. Now, you may ask a very simple question. If husband and wife are not able to conceive, in other words, husband's sperm is not impregnating his wife, then why would AIH help. Okay. What would be the purpose? AA simply means that instead of intercourse, uh, the sperm is obtained from the husband. We'll discuss how. 
and it's injected into the wife. Right? See, that's called artificial insemination. By the way, artificial insemination first started with animals. It was a way of impregnating cows to produce uh, calves. Why? Because it's very difficult. Bulls are very, very aggressive. Right? When a bull wants to mate, you know, the bull will destroy a building, destroy a house. So farmers were looking for cheaper and safer ways to get their cows pregnant. So they developed that they would obtain semen from the bull when the bull was not in heat. And then they would just inject it into the female cow's uterus and she would get pregnant. Right? So artificial insemination was developed by farmers in order to create a safer way to produce cattle. But at some point, at the very beginning of the 20th century, it was thought that this could work for human beings as well. But my question is simply a very simple question. If husband is not able to impregnate his wife by marital relations, then what are you gaining by using husband's sperm and injecting it into the wife? Why would that be better? So there are a few reasons why it would be better. I'll give you just two basic reasons why it would be better. There'll also be a lot of reasons I'll get to. The two medical reasons are that sometimes a person may have a low sperm count, meaning to say, you have to differentiate, again, forgive me for being explicit, but in learning, we've got we to define our terms. What's the there, question again? No, I'm just asking a very simple question. Oh. What is the purpose of artificial insemination with husband's sperm okay. uh, if she's not getting pregnant from the husband? So what do you, what do you accomplish with? So answer number one, sometimes the husband may have what is called a low sperm count. By that I mean... In an ejaculate, the whole ejaculate is called semen. That has liquid, all sorts of water, that has all sorts of stuff in it. But in the semen are spermazoa, are, are those things that could fertilize sperm. Now, because the egg is tiny and the sperm is tiny, <laughs> you know, if you have very few sperm, it's not likely it's gonna hit the egg. It's like, you know, it's like uh, an atom trying to hit an atom. So the higher the count, meaning how many sperm do you have per unit of fluid, the more likely a pregnancy. So low sperm count is a common problem. Uh, but the point is, when you have artificial insemination, you can combine the ejaculates several times, remove the fluid, and have a higher concentration of sperm. So I'm going to make up a number. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Let's assume a good sperm count would be whatever is a million uh, per liter. Let's assume that the husband only has half a million per liter. But if you have two ejaculates, there'll be a million in two liters. You can then drain away a liter of water, and now you have a million in a liter. Right? That's how you do it. So one reason for AIH is by aggregating multiple ejaculates, you can raise the sperm count. That's reason uh, number, number one. And a second reason is motility, right? There are two problems in male, I mean more than that, but two main problems in male infertility. Uh, one is low sperm count, and the other is low motility. Motility is the ability of the sperm to move with force. If it's not moving with a lot of speed or power, it will not be able to penetrate the egg. And once again, artificial insemination, you're using an injection or whatever it is, that propels the force. So AIH has two medical justifications. 
One is low sperm count, and the other is low motility. Okay. So, are there halachic issues with AIH? I mean, let's assume that basically the doctor tells the husband, you have a low sperm count, you have a low motility, but we can work with AIH. Uh, what halachic problems are there? So problem number one is, how do you obtain sperm if it's not in the context of intercourse? Now, here's the problem. One of the very strong prohibitions against halacha, in halacha is what is called the wasting of seed, the emission of seed, seed meaning sperm, levatala, for no purpose. This would basically mean male masturbation. Again, I, I really don't want to get too explicit. Uh, uh, for a woman to do whatever, whatever this is, is not a halachic problem per se. It may not be a good idea, and there may be reasons not to do it, but the problem for, for a man in masturbation is called wasting of seed. It is not the act itself, it's the sperm that comes out. So this is a very severe prohibition, uh, and this is derived from the story of Yehuda and Tamar. If you remember the story, we're gonna read it in a few weeks. Uh, if you remember, Yehuda had a daughter-in-law, Tamar, who was married to a guy, Er. And it says, Er did evil in the eyes of God, and God killed him. So then she married his brother, Onan. And Onan, too, did evil and was killed. And then you'll recall, Yehuda had a third son. He didn't want her to marry because he was afraid that she would kill his third son. So she dressed up as a prostitute. So Yehuda was with her. And from that, eventually comes David HaMelech, actually, you know, from that whole union. So I'm not focusing on that. That itself is a very, very important and significant story. I'm just focusing on the deaths of Er and Onan. Why did Er and Onan die? Because they did evil in the eyes of God. And the Gemara explains that they didn't want to mar Tamar's beauty by a pregnancy. So they did interrupted intercourse, meaning they began the intercourse, but when, we, when, we, when it was time to ejaculate, they ejaculated outside of her body. In other words, they wasted the seed. The seed did not go into her body. And for that, uh, God decreed that they deserved to die. Right? So, so this is called Hotsa'as uh, Zera Levatala the emission of seed, sperm, for naught, and sometimes it's even just called ma'aseh er v'onam, the action of er and onam. Okay, this is zera levatala. So, the big question is, oh, actually, let me stop there for a moment, uh, because people, so we know masturbation is no good, you know, wasting of seed. What about having relations with a woman who either, you know, your wife, a person's wife, who either has a hysterectomy or is post-menopause and who cannot have children. Is that number two? Huh? Is that number two? Is what number two? The... Okay, never mind then. No, no, I'm not, uh, I'm, not, I'm not doing it that way right now. Okay. Uh, right? So the thing is that it's understood that we've shown him explain a very important idea that when there is the normal relationship of husband and wife, the normal sexual relationship of husband and wife is valid and proper 
and holy and good, even when it does not result in a pregnancy, because the act of having sexual intercourse itself is valid as long as you're not interfering in the act, like a condom or the like. So be sure you understand this. It is not called emission of sperm in vain just because there won't be a pregnancy. But it is emission of sperm in vain if the man is using a condom, so the seed does not enter the woman's body, or the man interrupts his intercourse by withdrawing and ejaculating outside of the body, that is called zara levatana. So now, let's go back to AIH. In an AIH scenario, right, the doctor is going to inject the husband's sperm into the wife, but the husband has to give the sperm. He will typically give the sperm by some type of masturbation or whatever it would be. Problem is, this is halachic problem number one. Halachic problem number one is the procurement of sperm for AIH a violation of hotsa'as zera levatala? Is it called ma'aseer v'onan? So this is a very serious question, because if you're going to say that it's usher, then that destroys the possibility of AIH. But the poskim say the following. Since the sperm is being procured for the purpose of having a child, that's not called for naught. So even if it's through a masturbation or whatever it is, meaning there are two ways that it's not for naught. One is marital intercourse is not for naught, even when it won't produce a child. But the opposite is true as well. Procurement of sperm for fertility purposes is not for naught, even if it's not through marital intercourse. So the Misa, bottom line is, we do, we do permit the procurement of the sperm for purposes of fertility. Now, this does raise, so that's halakhic issue number one, procurement of the sperm. Now, I do want to raise a halakhic issue number two that's connected to this, and that is when couples go in for fertility workups, before they even use the sperm for AIH, they, they want to do all sorts of testing. They want to test the ejaculate for motility, for sperm count. Now, the problem is, even if you say that the giving of an ejaculate that'll be used in a possible fertility is not, in, not for naught, but all that testing stuff, like the testing that's done. I mean, there you're giving ejaculate, or the, you, I mean, the man is giving an ejaculate, and it's, it's for testing. It's not going to go into the woman's body or whatever, whatever it would be. So the truth is, that is an interesting, that is an important shayla, and basically a religious man has to kind of insist uh, that the testing be kept to an absolute minimum, or, and or, any ejaculate that's left over from the test be used as part of the uh, artificial insemination process, meaning we would differentiate between ejaculates that are just used for testing and ejaculates that will go directly to uh, a child.
not to, I mean, to the create, the possible creation of chakra. I don't mean the Vada creation, the possible creation of a chakra. Okay, so that's uh, issue number number one and two. Hotsa'at, Zera Levatala, and the distinction between ejaculate that is used in fertility and ejaculate that is used in testing. Now, some rabbis say that because masturbation is such a serious sin generally, you should not rely on any of these until the woman is thoroughly tested. Because after all, if the woman can't have a child, then none of this is going to work. So that's why uh, some rabbis will say there must be a thorough female workup as well, and only if there is no physiological issue on the part of the woman can we then go to step two. And number two, they have also required that there be a certain waiting period, meaning an attempt to have children naturally before we do this, and some have suggested five years, and some have even suggested 10 years. So you can see that even though there are heterim, Halacha is kind of reluctant to utilize these heterim, so they require a female workup first, and then they require a waiting period as well before you go to it. So sometimes a couple wants to go to a fertility doctor, like, you know, one year after the marriage, some postman would, I mean, go to the doctor, but some postman would not allow artificial insemination in that way. Okay. Now, let me mention a very interesting halachic that AIH can, can solve. And this is a very, very interesting. And this is connected to the laws of Nida. We know biologically, a woman can only get pregnant uh, for around 72 hours a month. Uh, meaning she, uh, not, not more than really three. In other words, she can get pregnant within a certain uh, number of hours before ovulation and after ovulation. Past that point, a pregnancy is very unlikely. Not, not impossible, but very, very unlikely because the egg has disintegrated or whatever it would be. In fact, that's the basis of a Catholic birth control. Right? The Catholic Church does not believe in any type of contraception, but they have what is called the rhythm method. And of course, the rhythm method fails quite a lot, but the theory of the rhythm method is a good theory, and that is you time intercourse at a time when a woman can't get pre- cannot get pregnant. People mess up in the calculations, but in theory, that works out well. Now, typically, uh, in a normal uh, menstrual cycle, the, this actually fits exactly with the laws of Nida. Uh, because we know the laws of Nida, a woman menstruates, she is forbidden to her husband for 12 days, right, five days, and then followed by seven days without bleeding and she goes to the mikveh after 12 days. For most cycles, uh, a woman's fertile period is between day 12 and day 14 from, this, from the onset of her period. So mikveh is timed exactly to coincide with optimal fertility periods. And that's how Hashem designed it. Hashem designed the halachic structure that Badafka, when a woman is able to get pregnant, that's when relations are permitted. But here is the problem. Some women have bleeding that extends beyond that point. Because remember, you cannot start the seven clean days till right, no earlier than the fifth day, the woman checks herself, 
And if it's clean, she then starts her seven clean days and goes to the mikvah. But if there's blood, or there continues to be bleeding, she cannot start her seven clean days. So let's imagine the following. A woman is still bleeding instead of five days, that would be the normal assumption, five followed by seven clean. Let's say she's bleeding for eight days. She has a heavy period. She's bleeding for eight days. Even if she gets a hefsik tara after eight days, she now cannot go to the mikvah for seven days, so she's going to the mikvah the 15th day or later from the onset of her period. So by the time she goes to the mikvah, this is actually a fertility problem that's unique to Orthodox Jews. Meaning even if the husband's sperm is fine and the motility is fine and her, her ovaries are fine and her ovulation is fine, medically there's no problem. There is no medical problem at all. But because she has heavy periods that are longer than usual, by the time she goes to the mikvah, her fertility days are past. Right? So that's a real problem. It's only a problem for religious people, but it is a problem. So here is where AIAs can actually solve the halachic problem. That is, if she cannot go to the mikvah until day 15 or day 16, but her optimal fertile days are day 12 and day 13, the husband cannot have relations with her because she's Anita, but we could inject through AIH she could get pregnant while she's in Nida without marital intercourse. And many opinions take the halachic position that AIH is permitted even when a woman is a Nida and has not yet gone to the mikvah because the Torah prohibits only intercourse. It prohibits relations. It does not prohibit impregnation and insemination. Again, um, I, do not implement this in practice without talking to a rabbi, either me or someone else, because I'm just giving you issues. I'm not giving you a final halachic decision on this. But it's something to consider. It is a problem for women with heavy periods, and AIH could solve that particular problem. So it's, it's, good, it's good to be aware of that issue. Some rabbis say she should go to the mikvah early, even though she can't have relations. Uh, by the way, this raises another issue. Aside, this is a parenthetical issue. And that's relevant to many, many Balanchuva. What is the halachic status of a child that is born from a nida, from a woman who doesn't go to the mikvah? Now, unfortunately, this is a very wide group, right? Anyone that's a Balanchuva or Balanchuva will tend to come from a mother who was not keeping Taras and Mishpacha. Is there a disability? Is there a stigma? Is there a problem? So I got good news for you, and I got bad news for you, but then I have good news on the bad news. The good news that we need to know is that a child that was born from a nida, even if it was a sin for the parents, has no disability whatsoever. A child who was born from a woman who didn't go to the mikvah is totally kosher, can marry any Jew they want, even a Kohen, no problem. Okay, it's important to know. That's the good news. Bad news is there is a teaching in the Gemara 
that a child that is born from Anita has a certain spiritual blemish. And when one is looking, and by the a man or a woman, whether it's a boy or a girl, and one who is looking for the best possible marriage should try to avoid a, a child who is a needy. So that's the bad news. Good news is, halakhati, there's no problem. Bad news is, there's some spiritual defect. Now, this too is very disheartening. It's very disheartening. There's so many people who are sincerely, you know, serving Hashem and doing mitzvahs, men and women. Because remember, this, this rule applies men and women. But their parents didn't keep Tarot and Mishpacha. So here, I want to give you two modern answers, two very different answers, but modern answers why this is not a problem today. And therefore, uh, a boy should not be afraid to marry a woman who comes from Anita, and a woman should not be afraid to marry a man who came from Anita. Halakhically, this should not concern anybody. One is an answer of Rav Moshe Feinstein, and he says, well, listen, uh, if you think about the halachic minimum requirements of mikvah, minimum requirements. Now, when we build a mikvah, we're very, very strict. We build in all sorts of features. But if push comes to shove, Rav Moshe proves very intricately that even a bath with a, or a swimming pool would halachically be a kosher mikvah. So as a result, even if the woman, or the mother, you know, never kept taras and mishpacha, it's almost certain that she went to what is a kosher mikvah even by accident. A swimming pool or a bathtub, etc. Never have my Feinstein said, you're allowed to assume that the spiritual blemish of not being a nida does not apply to the vast majority of people because mom uh, took a bath or mom went to a swimming pool or whatever, whatever it is. That's Reb Moshe. Although, God forbid, we would never tell a person, oh, you need a mikvah? Go to the swimming pool. We don't say that, but after the fact, you know, we might say, oh, okay, it was kosher. But that's still applied for a woman who's married to a non-Jewish man? To do what? To? Like, because she's not allowed to go to mikvah if she's not married to a Jew, right? That's correct. That's yeah. correct. Well, no, but we would not allow, we, we, we would not prohibit her from swimming. You know, that, that it would only be a real, only a, a real, real mikvah. She would not go to. Because then she feels that we're <coughs> legitimating the relationship. Now, the stipler... Uh, who was the father of Rav Chaim Kineski. You may have heard of Rav Chaim Kineski. He was a great rabbi who died mm -hmm. last year. But a lot of people don't remember. His father was also a very, very great rabbi. He was called the Stipler, which is uh, an abbreviation for Horna Stipel, which is a city in the Ukraine that he had come from. Uh, the Stipler gives another reason. The Stipler says that Chazal never said it's forbidden to marry a person who comes from Anita. They just said you shouldn't. Because the thought would be that if somebody was conceived from sin, there may be defects in their character and defects in their midot. But that's only an assumption. If you know the person well and you see that their midot are good, then they're just an exception to the rule. Meaning it was never a rule. It was just a, a fear. And you can check out anything else. Okay, you know, but you have to be afraid that maybe the midot are not good. But if I see the midot are good, what should be the problem? Okay, so the bottom line, I don't want to confuse you too much, the bottom line today is that we, most people do not check on whether your mother or my mother kept the laws of Nida. We just evaluate people as individuals. Okay, so now let's go back to this.
Uh, and that is that AIH, therefore, can be used even when a woman is a nita. That's a very important rule because that, that solves the problem of uh, heavy periods or earlier ovulation. It can, work, it can work another way, too. Earlier ovulation, if a woman ovulates earlier, then her fertile period will be over earlier in the month. Right? So AIH is a solution for that. So the Kitsur, we've identified three advantages of AIH. It helps when there is a low sperm count. It helps when there is a low motility. And it helps for early ovulation and heavy periods. Uh, the halakhic problems are uh, procurement of the ejaculate, which the postcom have permitted, uh, based on it not being levat halak, but they have required that the woman undergo a workup first, and they've required waiting periods. And the second halachic problem is, can you use it uh, while a woman is in Anita? And here the postcom have said, yes, yes, you can. So that's what AIH uh, does. Okay. Now, let's talk about the other type of AIH. Okay, now we'll go to the other type. That is artificial insemination with donor sperm. Now here, why would you want? Why would a woman want donor sperm? Because basically, the husband is totally infertile. The husband's motility rate might be zero. The husband may have no sperm. There is such a thing of no sperm, meaning there's ejaculate, there's fluid, but there are no living sperm in the fluid. Under those circumstances, it is impossible for the husband to have a child unless God does a miracle. Sometimes God will do a supernatural miracle, but you know, we, we can't expect, right? This is a rule in halacha, ein somchen alanes. We are not allowed to rely on supernatural miracles. Hashem does them sometimes, but we are not allowed to make decisions based on that assumption. So as a result, the woman wants to be pregnant. The man cannot have kids. So the question becomes, can she be impregnated by donor sperm? So a few things. First of all, again, bad news. A man does not fulfill pru or vu when his wife has a child from a sperm donor because he's not the biological father. So in terms of, I want to have a kid so I can fulfill pru or vu, Donor sperm is just not going to make it because donor sperm is not mine. So even if I raise the child and even if I adopt the child, right? Adopting a child as well may be a great mitzvah, may be a wonderful mitzvah, but technically you are not mekayem pru or vu with an adopted child. So as far as halach is concerned, any child that is born from donor semen is the mother's child, 100%. Yeah, it's mom's child. It came out of her body. But in terms of dad, dad is a step-parent or an adoptive parent. Dad is not a bio, you know, husband is not a biological parent. So the first thing to know is impregnation via sperm donor is not going to be a fulfillment of pru or vu on the part of the husband. Okay. But let's assume the husband understands that. And the husband still says, husband and wife said, we want to have a kid. And I can't, if I, as a man, cannot be the biological father, 
at least I would like my wife to give birth to a child and I will raise the child like my own. Okay, so put aside the pru or vu problem. Is there a problem with uh, impregnation by sperm donor? So here, we actually get to a huge, huge machlokas. It's a classic machlokas between two great, great gedolim. And this goes back to the early 1960s. Between the Satmer Rav and Rav Moshe Feinstein. Uh, now the Satmer Rav, he's sometimes called the Satmer Rebbe. Technically he was the Satmer Rav. Satmer was a town in Hungary, but the Satmer Hasidim have very large uh, numbers. Uh, their home base is Williamsburg, not Williamsburg, Virginia, which is colonial, but Williamsburg, Brooklyn, which is uh, the neighborhood next to Crown Heights. <laughs> In fact, I don't want to get into uh, a lot of gossip here, but uh, for various reasons, Satmer and Chabad have had a very, very turbulent history, and they sometimes get into rumbles, mainly Satmer's fault, not Chabad's fault, but uh, be it as it may. Uh, they have a very large community in Williamsburg, and also near Muncie, Kiryat Yoel, big, big city, a big town rather, and here in Israel. Uh, they're, they're actually very big as well. Satmer is a, a big Hasidus. Now, when most people think of Satmer, the main thing they think about is anti-Zionism. The Satmer Rebbe was the big, 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 I mean, now there's already been a few Satmer Rebbe's, but I'm talking about the original Satmer Rebbe, Rev Yoel Teitelbaum, who died in the uh, 1970s. Uh, he was a real, real big, 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 big anti-Zionist. Uh, he believed that it was forbidden, for, according to Halakha, for the Jewish people to proclaim a state before the coming of Mashiach. He considered this to be an Avera, and he said, and it's not because the government is not religious. He said, even if every single member of the government kept all the mitzvahs, it's important to understand this, his, his opposition to the state of Israel was not because of the secular nature of the state. His opposition was, no matter how religious the state, it is something God does not allow us to do until the coming of the Mashiach. And to this day, uh, he is the spiritual influence of the Eid HaKaredes and various other groups, the groups in Yerushalayim. Now, by the way, I do want to tell you that although people look at the Satmar Rebbe and they say, oh, how, how extreme he is, the truth of the matter is, the Rebbe Rashab, back in the 1920s and earlier, had the same position. But later, Chabad modified it uh, for different reasons and, and the like. So with the Satmar, the Satmar Rebbe may have been like a lone voice by the 70s, but there was a time in which other great rabbis actually agreed with him, including... People, you know, you think he's a modern, more of a modern rabbi, but Shimshon of Hirsch in Germany actually took the position as well that the, in the 1800s that Jews should not have a state until the coming of Mashiach, right? So this is not so pashut as people say. Okay, uh, we'll talk about that later in the year. We'll talk about Zionism and, and the like. But when you think about Satmar Rebbe, you always think about anti-Zionism. Uh, but this has nothing to do with anti-Zionism. The Satmar Rebbe had a very interesting ruling on artificial insemination by a donor. And listen to what he said. He said, a married woman who is inseminated by sperm of a man other than her husband is guilty of adultery. 
And that has some very, very strong implications. Number one, because she's guilty of adultery, she is not allowed to stay married to her husband. You know this, if a woman commits adultery willingly, I don't mean rape, if a woman willingly commits adultery, her husband has to divorce her. That's the din of sota. So the, now that's Pasha. The Satmar Rebbe's chidush is insemination equals adultery. Therefore, she must leave her husband. And even more than that, and the child that is born from that union is a child that is born from adultery. And you know, a child that is born from adultery is Jewish, is Jewish if the mother is Jewish, but the child is a mamzer. Again, what's a mamzer? A mamzer is not a child born out of wedlock. A child born out of wedlock has no problems. Just like a child born from Anita. But if a child is born from adultery, the child is Jewish, but they cannot marry most Jews. They can only marry another mamzer, or they can marry a convert. But a child born from adultery? So the Satmar Rebbe is saying, artificial insemination with donor, AID, AID, is a time bomb. It actually means the woman has to leave her husband, even if the husband agreed to it, by the way, because the husband can't agree to adultery. Right? The husband can't give his wife permission to have adultery. So she has to leave her husband, and the child that is born is a monster. This is the Satmar Rebbe's position on AID. So obviously, if we would ask, would he permit AID, he would say, certainly not. Now, the one who argued with him on this point was a rabbi that I've already mentioned more than once, a few times, is the great Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was considered by many to be the greatest, certainly greatest halachic authority in America uh, in the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, he died in uh, 1985 uh, and the like. And Rabbi Feinstein basically said, no, again, I'm not giving you all the proofs. I mean, rest assured that they don't just make pronouncements, meaning they bring proofs and discussions on all sides. Rabbi Feinstein said, adultery is not adultery unless there is an act of intercourse. Injection of sperm into a woman's body is not an act of intercourse. So the woman is not guilty of adultery. The child is not her husband's child, that's true, but the child is not a monster. He's just a Jew, regular Jew with no disability. Now, this was a big, big, big argument. And as Satmers who tend to get very excited uh, when, when people disagree with them, and not the Rebbe, the Hasidim, they actually burnt Reb Moshe's effigy, meaning they made pictures of Reb Moshe, and they burnt him, they protested, and they yelled, and they screamed, uh, and the like. And Reb Moshe wrote no fewer than four responses, clarifying his position. Uh, but uh, they still uh, continue to attack him, vilify him in various ways. 
because Rav Moshe was a very, very forgiving, forgiving person, and the story goes that one time a Satmar Chassid, after all of this died down a little bit, came to Rav Moshe's house to get his certificate that he could be a Shochet. He wanted to be tested as a Shochet. And when the family saw the Satmar Chassid, they wanted to kick him out because they said, you were, you, know, you were burning Rav Moshe in effigy. Now you're coming for a favor. And Rav Moshe heard the tumult and he asked what's going on. He said, here's a guy that was, you know, insulting you and now he's coming for a favor. Rav Moshe said, on Erev Yom Kippur, don't we forgive everybody that hurt us? I forgave him. So what are you, what are you creating any machlokas? There's no machlokas anymore. And the story goes that the guy didn't even know the laws of Shechita that well. And Rav Moshe reviewed it with him again and again. By the way, Rav Moshe had a very uh, close relationship with, with the Rebbe. They were, they were, they were friends. Um, and in fact, it's very interesting that the Rebbe wanted to get Rav Moshe to wear Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. Are you familiar with this? There, there, there are different ways of making tefillin. Machlokas Rashi and his grandson Rabbeinu Tam, what is the order of the paragraphs of the tefillin? Now a standard pair of tefillin follows the view of Rashi. So whenever a boy buys tefillin, he'll buy Rashi's tefillin. But among Hasidim, in addition to Rashi's tefillin, they put out an extra pair that's based on Rabbeinu Tam. Uh, among non-Hasidim, it's not that often, but among Hasidim, Hasidim do wear Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. I think. And if you happen to be a Rebbe, you have to wear a third pair, but that's, that's a split thing only, only Rebbe's do. But, uh, but uh, Chabad Hasid will wear two pairs of tefillin. So the Rebbe wanted to get Rabbi Moshe to wear Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. And uh, the Rebbe wrote to Rabbi Moshe, he said, you know, you're a tzaddik and you're a gaon and you're a gadol. It's appropriate for you to wear the extra pair of tefillin. So Rabbi Moshe said, I used to wear Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin in Europe, but when I came to America, I couldn't find a sofer who was meticulous enough. So basic tefillin, I got to take what I get. But for the extra tefillin, I need a perfect sofer. And, you know, there's nobody in America like that. So the Rebbe wrote him back and said, I'll find you somebody that you will approve. And somehow the Rebbe got a sofer that even Ramosha could not find anything wrong with. And Ramosha started wearing Rabbeinu Tam's films, you know, so wow. it's interesting. We talk about uh, all the people the Rebbe brought to higher levels of Judaism. <laughs> the Rebbe brought Ramosha Feinstein to a, to a higher level by getting him to wear Rabbeinu Tam's tefillin. So this was Rav Moshe's position. Now, Rav Moshe then went on, though. There's a complication. So, again, what's our basic machlokas? According to the Satmer Rebbe, AID is adultery. The woman cannot stay married to the husband. Number two, AID produces mamzerus, which the child cannot marry uh, into the regular Jewish world. His whole life, he or she has that disability. And Mamzerus goes on to the next generation, by the way. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. That's Satmar Rebbe. Rav Moshe Feinstein disagrees with both of those positions. It's not adultery. She can stay married to her husband. And the child is not a Mamzer because you need intercourse for both of those things. Okay, that's the basic machlokas. But then Rav Moshe went on to something else. Rav Moshe said, in spite of what I said, that AID does not raise adultery problems or mamzer problems, 
I don't encourage it. And the reason why he doesn't encourage it is because of secret incest that may come out in the future. Now, this is a new problem. What is Ramosha's problem? Ramosha's problem is that sperm donors are generally anonymous. Right? They deposit in a bank, sperm bank. And sperm donors tend to be repeat donors. Very often they're medical students, they get a little money. They get paid for uh, every donation. So let's imagine the following. Sperm donor is impregnates woman number one, who has a boy. Sperm donor impregnates woman number two, that has a girl. Now, this boy and this girl have different mothers. But they actually have the same father, but they don't know it. They don't know it. 20 years later, boy from woman one meets girl from woman two. They don't know they're related. People might even say, oh, it's so nice that, you know, husband and wife, you kind of look the same. That's really nice. <laughs> we look the same because we come from the same father. So this is what we would call a secret incest problem. Now, you may say, oh, that's far-fetched, that's crazy, that's not going to happen in a million years. It's already happened. You can do a Google search, you will find that siblings have gotten married coming from the same anonymous sperm donor. This is not a one in a million. This actually has happened. So Rav Moshe was against the idea of uh, impregnation with anonymous sperm donors, not because of adultery and not because of mamzer, but because of secret incest. Um, by the way, there was, uh, you know, I, I, before I made Aliyah, I lived in the Maryland, in the Virginia, Washington area. So uh, there was a fertility specialist in Northern Virginia, uh, Dr. Jacobson, Jewish. And Dr. Jacobson had an extraordinarily high rate of success. The average success for a fertility doctor and his patients is around 35%. It's not amazing, but no, 35%. Uh, he had a success like 60%. So he was attracting you know, many, many people because he was better than ever, anybody. It was discovered that the reason why he was having such a rate of success is he was throwing away husband's sperm and putting in his own sperm. So apparently he was a potent person. So everybody was having kids, but they weren't the husband's kids. They were his kids. So he had like 80, 80, he had like 80 children that were born from his sperm that all of these women thought, uh, their husbands thought it was from them. They thought it was AIH. It turned out to be AID without consent and the like. So, you know, he lost his license. I don't know if he's alive anymore, but, you know, whatever. He got, he got in big trouble for it. But it was predicted that had this not been discovered, the chances of an incestuous marriage among these 80 people was very, very high. Because, you know, people say statistically, uh, and maybe this doesn't work for Orthodox Jews, but in the non-Orthodox world, people tend to marry within a radius of 10 miles of their house. You marry the boy next door or the girl next door. Now again, with friend people, it tends to be different because you know you marry from this country and that country and that country. 
but in the secular world, you marry somebody in your, uh, your neighborhood. So as a result, since all of these 80 people were in the same geographical area, the chances of a marriage that would have been incestuous was actually fairly high. Right? So that was Rav Moshe's. Right? So that's his second point. Okay, so first point, uh, it's not adultery, and the child is not a mamzer. Second point, AIA, I'm sorry, AID, AID should be discouraged because of the potentiality of hidden incest. But now he makes a third point that may shock you a little bit, and that is, if the woman is really insistent and the woman suffers a lot of pain because she can't have a child and adoption would not address that concern, then Reb Moshe is willing to allow uh, anonymous sperm donation, but only, only if it comes from a non-Jewish donor and not if it comes from a Jewish donor. Now let me explain why that's so. Everybody knows that Judaism is matrilineal rather than patrilineal. Right? That, that basically means if your mother is Jewish and your father is not, you are not a half Jew. You are a 100% Jew if your mother is Jewish. The other way around, if your father is Jewish and your mother is not, you are a 100% non-Jew. You are not a half Jew. Meaning there's no such thing in Judaism as a half Jew. You're either 100% it or 100% not it. And it all depends not on your father. Everybody knows that. That's a famous rule. Now, it is true that the conservative reform movement have moved away from it, but again, that's not, that's not the halacha. I mean, they're, they're, they're simply trying to change the halachic principle. Now, there is a corollary of that rule that's a little less familiar. And the corollary of that rule is that the non-Jewish partner's father is not halachically your father, meaning uh, the woman, right, if, if a non-Jewish man has a child from a Jewish woman, the non-Jewish man is not halachically regarded as the father. Now, I, again, this doesn't mean there's no emotional connection, it doesn't mean you don't love them, that doesn't mean we're not talking about love, we're not talking about affection, we're not talking about gratitude, all of that of course you'll have. We're just talking about strict halacha, it is not the father. So for example, you would not inherit. I mean, if a, if a non-Jewish man had kids from a non-Jewish wife and then has kids from a Jewish wife, the kids from the Jewish wife do not inherit him without a will because they're not the legal heirs, because he's not their legal father. So this has an incest implication that's a little complicated, and that is the following. If a non-Jewish man impregnates a Jewish woman and has a girl, and then a non-Jewish man impregnates another Jewish woman and has a boy, the boy and the girl are not brother and sister. Okay, think about that. They're halachically, halachically, they're not brother and sister. 
because they were born from different mothers and neither of them are paternally connected to the non-Jew. Now, biologically, they are half-siblings because they share a father. Biologically, that's true. Halachically, they don't share a father because neither of them has any father at all. Halachically. Which means, this may sound very, very odd, if the boy would marry the girl, in the eyes of halacha, not genetics, in the eyes of halacha, it is not an incestuous marriage. But one of them is Jewish and one of them is non-Jewish. Well, that's even, that's even, that's even more so. Uh, it's true. So it's halachically wrong. Uh, well, well, it's it's wrong not because of brother and sister. It's wrong oh. because Jew and non-Jew. Yeah. That would be another reason why it's wrong. But in terms of brother and sister, they're not related. So Rav Moshe's argument is quite ingenious, even though it may blow your mind. If you're gonna use a sperm donor, let it be a non-Jewish sperm donor. That way, the brother and sister problem will not arise. How luckily, if you use a Jewish donor then you've got a problem of brother and sister. Now, Rav Moshe then says that, well, I don't know, I don't know who the sperm donor is. It's an anonymous donor. So Rav Moshe says another rule. There's a lot, of, a lot of rules that follow from here. Since in the United States, or most countries, a majority of people who donate sperm are going to be not Jewish because that's the majority of the population. Halacha makes an assumption whenever you're not sure where something comes from, you always assume it comes from the majority. The Gemara gives an example. If you have 10 butcher stores selling kosher meat and one butcher store selling treif meat and you find a piece of meat uh, in the middle of the park, yet I wouldn't advise you to, to eat it anyway. <laughs> Okay, people were uh, a little more lenient on hygienic issues in those days. Uh, so the question is, where do I assume the meat came from? Do I assume it came from the kosher stores or the non-kosher store? So the halacha is, if most of the stores are kosher stores, you can assume it comes from the kosher store. This is a principle called majority, rov. Very important halachic principle. So Rav Moshe says, if I don't know if the sperm of the donor comes from a Jew or comes from a guy, I look at the majority of the sources of that sperm. And that would be in America, in most countries, non-Jews. By contrast, in Eretz Yisrael, although the Arab birth rate is growing, but Baruch Hashem, and it should remain this way, a majority of people in Israel are Jewish, you'd have to assume that the sperm comes from a Jewish person. So, Ramosha's ruling is kind of multifaceted and complicated, although it has, I think, a kind of almost an aesthetic symmetry and logic. And that is, uh, on one hand, again, the good news, artificial insemination with donor is not a mamzer problem, and it's not an adultery problem. Bad news, we would discourage it because of incest. 
secret incest. But the good news is, if you really insist, we will allow even a secret incest, provided you can assume that the sperm donors are not Jewish, because there's no paternity to create the incest bonds, and because the and because a majority of people outside of Israel are not Jewish, uh, you can always assume that the sperm comes from a non-Jew. In Eretz Yisrael, you would have to assume it comes from a Jew unless you knew to the contrary. That's Rav Moshe's take on the AID. Now, I have to tell you that that enraged Satmer even more than the first ruling about not adultery because they said Rav Moshe is actually saying that a woman should allow non-Jewish sperm to enter her body and create a pregnancy. That sounds pretty bad. I mean, that doesn't sound like a holy, spiritual thing to do. Uh, so many people are kind of almost shocked at what Rav Moshe, at what Rav Moshe said, but that was the position that he took. So are there any questions about uh, that? Yeah. If there's a Jewish woman with a Jewish husband, and they're married, and the Jewish woman gets, in Israel, gets an anonymous donor, yeah. So assuming that donation is from a Jewish man, who's the father of Allah? The, the father halakhically is the donor, and you don't know who the father is. But it's, it's absolutely clear that the, the husband is not the father of that son. That's absolutely clear. Now the husband may adopt the child, but I want to make, I want to make it clear that halakha has a bit of a funny relationship with adoption. Halacha recognizes if I adopt a child, I raise the child, the child owes me gratitude and love, but technically that does not make me the father. In fact, uh, uh, when an adopted father dies, an adopted child does not have to sit shiva, does not have to say Kaddish, but the hope would be, the hope would be that he'd want to sit shiva, he or she would want to sit shiva and say Kaddish, because of gratitude and love and akaratatot. Again, I always feel a little uncomfortable because uh, when I talk about these halachas, people think, oh, that means, you know, my non-Jewish father is not my father, I don't talk to him. You know what I mean? In terms of love and emotion, everything is there. No, no, one is, no one is taking that away. I mean, and even in Jewish, a Jewish man adopts a child. I mean, uh, you know, halachically, it's not his father. Uh, in fact, uh, I'll just mention, um, I'll give you an interesting uh, issue. You know, in Eretz Yisrael, one of the things that is different than Chutz Laaretz is the blessing of the Kohanim, Duchani, we call it, the priestly blessing. In Chutz Laaretz, Ashkenazim, Sephardim do it every day, even in Chutz Laaretz, but Ashkenazim do the Birkas Kohanim only on Chagim, only on Yom Tov. But here, in Yerushalayim at least, we do Birkas Kohanim every single day every single day. Uh, that's what we do. So I know a fellow, he's a Kohen, and he has some biological children with his wife, but he also adopted a child. I guess I think he adopted a child before they had their biological children. Now, a Kohen who adopts a child, even if the child was born Jewish, whether he's Jewish or non-Jewish or converted, the child does not become a Kohen. Does not become a Kohen. So as a result, the guy's biological children duchen with him, but the adopted child cannot go up and duchen, and he's not a Kohen. 
So as a result, the, the adopted child feels embarrassed, feels a little ashamed, and doesn't like to daven with his father. He daven's in another show. Right? Because, once again, adoption does not make you the same as the biological parents in that way. Okay. Alrighty, so everyone understands the, the basic machlokas between the Satmai Rav and Rav Moshe Feinstein. I have a question, actually. Yes. What happens if the donor isn't anonymous? It's not anonymous. Yeah, like if it's from, like, could your family member say, like, I'll donate for you? Yeah, so here, here oh, okay, so here, here's a problem. Uh, well, uh, well, I mean, like Ramosha, like a Rebbe, you couldn't because it would be adultery. I mean, Satan Rebbe says, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like Ramosha Feinstein. So here's the problem. It's true that if you know who the donor is, that actually avoids incest because you'll know who the father is. But I think there's another problem. I think there's a very strong sense, even in the secular community, that knowing the donor makes it look more like adultery. Meaning to say, uh, if a woman is married to a guy, you don't want some other guy going around saying, that's my kid or whatever it is. So theoretically, it could be done. Theoretically, it could be done. You're right. But uh, we would discourage it. We would discourage having a known donor uh, in a marriage. Now, let me, make, let me just raise one other issue that's very, very significant. And that is, what about donor sperm for a single unmarried woman? Until now, I've been discussing a married woman. AIH, sperm from her husband. AID, sperm from a donor. But with a single woman, you can have this issue as well. And in fact, it's a growing issue. It comes up in two contexts. Uh, one is the uh, lesbian, and the other is simply the older woman who has not found a mate. Let's first talk about that one, which is maybe the more kosher case. Let's just say we have a from woman, a religious woman, and she unfortunately has not found her zivug. She has not found her shidduch. Now, unfortunately, there is the reality of a biological clock, although Brich Hashem, sorry, Imenu, conceived at 90, but that was a miracle. Basically, we, you know, generally speaking, women today do not have children at 90 and the like. So when a woman is 40 or past 40, she's kind of approaching more or less the end of the rope, but there's no shidduch in sight. There's no shidduch in sight. But she very much wants to be a mother and she would be a good mother, let's assume. So the question is, now, now again, I mean, legally she could do this. Legally she can do this, that's not the question. A single woman can certainly have access to the services of a sperm bank, that's not the problem. But we're not asking legally, we're asking halachically. She's a religious woman, Halachically, would the halacha permit an unmarried woman to be impregnated with donor sperm? Um, like, you know, from either from non-Jewish or Jewish. Really, this, this question is really not going to make a big difference. So here, the relatively few rabbis that have talked about this, they have not been able to come up with a clear reason why it should be forbidden. Meaning, halachically, you can't automatically point to something that this is usher like trait. But hashkafically, hashkafically meaning philosophically, spiritually, they have not looked at the idea favorably. They have not 
thoughts, this was a good idea. And they give a few different reasons. But again, you understand that there's a difference here between saying something is awesome and saying that something is improper. I cannot tell you that it is usur. But people are not so comfortable with it. And here are a few reasons. Reason number one is it may remove the incentive to get married. Because part of why, I mean, listen, men are a pain in the neck. Uh, but you know, a woman gets married because it's the only way you'll have kids. <laughs> if I could have kids without a man, well, that would be a, a much better, and it's a little bit of a caricature, but uh, to some degree, it's true that if you broaden the possibilities of having children without husbands, then people might not bother to get married, at least some people. And since we want to encourage marriage, we want to encourage the formation of a bayit, we don't want to create mechanisms where people can have kids without getting married. Number one. Yeah. Is it still so important to get married if a woman is past the point of being able to conceive? Uh, that, that, that is a very good question, um, but it's still uh, something that's desirable because we consider, it's important to understand that the holiness of marriage is not only procreation. Procreation is an important aspect, but it's the union of man and woman that brings holiness into the world. So even if they're totally childless, even if they can never have children, the Shekhinah exists in that union. So that's one aspect. We don't want to discourage people from getting married. Second reason is spiritually, there may be some negative impact on the child because the child will be raised without a father. And obviously, what do Chazal say? There are three partners in the creation of a child. There is the father, there is the mother, they create the body part, so to speak, and then there's Hashem that breathes in the Neshama. But if you need a three-way partnership, when you're cutting out one of the partners ahead of time, who knows how that's going to affect the spiritual balance. That's a, a second idea. Now, it's true that there are children born into the world without fathers. Sometimes the father might die during the pregnancy, but that's an act of God. That's what Hashem does. But to deliberately say, I'm going to have a child without a father being involved, some say that's spiritually injurious to the child. And the third concern that's been raised is it may be a mask for promiscuity, meaning to say the following. Uh, if a person could have a child through an anonymous sperm bank, then even when they go out and they are promiscuous and get pregnant, they could always say it's from the sperm bank. In other words, it, it might encourage, on some level, immoral behavior by providing a cover or a mask that otherwise could not be disguised. Now, in spite of this, there is one rabbi in, in, in the religious Zionist community who's a, who's a posek. He actually does permit it, but only if the woman is over 40 and only if she's been trying to get married for at least 10 years, meaning she's really, really tried uh, for a number of years 
and she's approaching the end of the clock, so he was willing to consider it under those circumstances. Now, there is another reason why a woman might want to use a sperm donor. Right? The first reason is simply she's getting older and doesn't have a shidduch. The second reason might be this is how a lesbian, this is how a lesbian couple could have a child. Uh, right? Basically, uh, you know, they don't have relations with a man, uh, either a lesbian by herself or, or a, a lesbian couple. Now there, of course, you do have another issue, and this issue would even apply by adoption, not only uh, artificial you know, insemination, and that is, is it proper, halakhically, to facilitate reproduction for people who are not living in accordance with the lifestyle of halakha? Meaning to say, would halakha encourage or permit lesbian adoptions or lesbian pregnancies through artificial insemination or the like. Um, I'm not going to fully address that question now, but that, that is a big question, meaning what exactly is, how do we view uh, lesbianism in terms of raising children? And of course, with respect to adoption, the same issue would apply to two gay men. And they're not going to have a pregnancy, but the same thing with two gay men adopting. Now, when I was a rabbi in Silver Spring, there actually was a lesbian couple in my neighborhood, uh, two, two women, and uh, they identified themselves as Jewish. I guess they were Jewish. Uh, they adopted a boy, and they made a bris for the boy. And they invited uh, my wife and, and myself to come to the bris. Uh, now, lucky for me or not, I, I could not go that day, but I, but, but, but I would have gone, and my wife did go, because the cheshman here was that the child is Jewish. The child is Jewish, and the child's bris is a mitzvah. And How do they know that the child's Jewish? Um, I, I, I believe it, it, it was uh, uh, you know, an artificial insemination. I believe that one of the partners carried the baby who was Jewish. They knew the child was Jewish. So I didn't think the child should be penalized because you know, the, the, the mother's lifestyle was not in accordance with halacha. But it's a tough question. It's a tough question. When, I, when I've given this example to some people, they looked at me incredulously. You would have gone? How could you have gone? So now I'm a little scared to even bring it up uh, sometimes. Uh, but that was the question. And in terms of, you know, there was even some discussion. They wanted to be members of my show. So what do I do? Well, essentially, they couldn't join the show as a couple. Because you can't have a situation where whatever they call it, go by. Mr. and Mrs., Mrs. and Mrs., Mrs. and Mrs., I don't know what they, whatever that will be. But you can't acknowledge them as a couple because this is a union that's forbidden. But we could acknowledge them as two individual people who maybe are not keeping mitzvahs. I mean, listen, a normal Orthodox show will allow members who are not fully Shabbos, Shomer Shabbos, meaning what you do privately is between you and God as long as we're not publicly celebrating or recognizing. So I would, I would allow membership in an Orthodox show to a gay couple and to a lesbian couple, provided it's not a couple's membership, it's individual membership, and provided they are not militant on insisting 
and any official recognition of the relationship. So if they wanted to make a kiddish celebrating their anniversary, I would have to say no. But it gets really tricky. If they want to make a kiddish celebrating the birth and bris of the child, I don't know, because on one hand, it's a bris. It was a good bris, a kosher bris. On the other hand, they're celebrating it as the parents of the child, which is a union that was against the Torah. So in my, I didn't have to answer those questions. They didn't make the party in the Mishal, but, uh, but those are the types of issues. Now, part of the problem with, with gay and lesbians today is that they're no longer content to do things privately. It used to be uh, that whatever they do privately is privately, and that's their business. Now everything has to be uh, public and open and legitimated and koshered. That's really what creates the dilemma for an Orthodox rabbi. It's not so much that I have a congregant who's gay. Okay, somebody has a struggle. Everybody has struggles. The problem is when people want to be militant. That's really what, uh, I'm digressing a little bit, that's really what Yeshiva University is going through. I don't know if you're following this uh, with YU is going through, that uh, YU is an Orthodox school, college with the Yeshiva, and uh, they do have students who are gay, lesbian or lesbian, and uh, the school funds different clubs. So a group of gay and lesbian students wanted a gay pride club and they wanted the school to fund it, like they fund other clubs. There's a chess club, a Hebrew club, a Zionist club. Yeah, it must be a club. Why not? Now, why you refuse to do that? Because they say we're not going to pay money to support a club that is advocating gay and lesbian with pride and, and, and the like. Now, they brought a lawsuit. So the gay and lesbian students brought a lawsuit against YU that they're violating federal anti-discrimination laws by not giving equal treatment to gays and lesbians. Now, this is a very, very significant lawsuit for YU because if they lose this lawsuit, they will lose any federal government money. And YU is uh, not a well-off college, and without federal money, they would have to close, basically. Uh, they would fall apart. So uh, YU is, go is going through litigation, and they came up with something, which I, I frankly think is uh, not going to work. They came up with some compromise. They're not going to allow a gay pride club, but they'll, they'll allow a gay support group. So gay students can get together and talk about their problems and talk about their struggles and talk about how they can do tshuva to change their ways, as if, you know. Uh, so that's what YU is trying to get away with right now. I, I wish them, you know, I wish them good luck. <laughs> you know, I hope that would be accepted, but I don't think the gays are going to accept it. I don't think the court is going to accept it. So this is a real, real problem that people have to, uh, have to watch. And part of it, once again, is this notion of public. You know, forgive me for getting on a soapbox a little bit. Now, let me take an earlier example of intermarriage. Now, there's always been intermarriage in the Jewish world. Always been. Not, not as much as today, but there always was intermarriage. When I was growing up, just give me an example, 100, 100 years ago, when I was growing up, if, if a man was married to a non-Jewish woman and there was a bar mitzvah or a wedding, the man understood and the non-Jewish wife understood 
that she was not going to come to a Jewish religious ceremony. She would not come to a bar mitzvah. She would not come to a wedding. She understood that she was not part of the Jewish things, and the Jewish things she would not be involved in. So that was a situation where somebody was doing something improper, but they did it privately, and they didn't expect you to validate what they were doing. They did their thing. Today, that's not the way it works. Today, everybody wants not just tolerance, they want validation. They want legitimation. And that creates a real big problem, because it's one thing, you know, I'm not out to look for gays, hunt down gays, you know, open up, you know, kick down bedroom doors, arrest people, persecute people. No. I'm not perfect. I have many Averis, and other people have other Averis. And that's between them and God. It's none of my business to go checking on people. A hundred percent. As I told you, if somebody told me they were gay and they would, they would keep it private, they could be a member in my show. And I would just treat it like somebody who doesn't keep Shabbos. They're still a member of the, they're a Jew. But it gets complicated when people want public recognition of it. Because how can you publicly kind of approve something that's, that's against uh, halacha? So that, that's where you get a problem. It's not the Aveira that is so troubling for a synagogue or a rabbi. It's the publicity. And that's true for both intermarriage and it's true for gay and lesbian and even transgender, which is not even, even a bigger problem. Yeah. Um, what you said before about not wanting to punish a child for their yeah. severe. Yeah. So, would it be acceptable for um, like a gay or lesbian couple, like their children who are halakhically Jewish, to attend a Jewish school to get like a Jewish education? You know, I, I know this is hard, but one I, I feel one hundred percent. I mean, how, how can you deprive a Jewish child? of access to Jewish education. I, I just don't understand how you can do that. You know? And after all, I mean, we, we, I think for intermarriage we would do that. I mean, let's imagine mother is Jewish, father is not Jewish. And the kids come to a day school. Am I going to turn down the kids because, uh, because this is an intermarriage? I don't think so. So I'm not going to do it for the gay and lesbian either. I, I, know, I know it's hard, but how can I, how can I take that away from the, from the Jewish kid? I, I agree with that opinion. I've heard a different opinion that um, it's because it's a community is bringing to uphold Torah, yeah. and they, they say that if you want to join this this school, you need to be following our community and like regarding our community. Well, 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 well okay, okay. Let, let, so let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. I mean, if you had a school that said maybe that the only people that can join this school are Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashras, Shomer Taras and Mishpach. If you're making a school that is only for from people, then yeah, I could say that the lesbian couple are not keeping the Torah. But most schools are not that way. Most schools don't insist that people be 100% Orthodox. Most schools will take people in uh, even if the parents are not 100% from. So, if you're not limiting yourself to only from people, then I don't see the basis for excluding uh, a child of lesbians. You know, but yeah, I mean, if you, if it's a yeshiva, I mean, listen, in bigger cities, you have a big diversity of day school. I mean, I mean, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut, right? So in Hartford, Connecticut, there was only one day school. Most of my classmates were not Shomer Shabbos. It was an Orthodox school, but they were not right. So a school like that, which is the only school of the community that, that keeps halacha, I think should be open to every Jewish child. 
Now, if you go to a place like New York or Baltimore, you know, there'll be different schools. Uh, some people only want a school where nobody has a television. <laughs> Even things like, okay, so if you have that type of school, so uh, you can exclude because there are other schools that the kids can go to. But when there's no other school, you can't, you can't have that type of policy. I'm sorry, someone want to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what if uh, the mother wasn't Jewish and the father was Jewish? So halakhically, the child isn't Jewish, but was raised... Okay, so that's, that's a much more difficult question, meaning to say, when the mother's Jewish and the father's not, for sure I would take in the kid. When two lesbians have a baby that's halakhically Jewish, I would take in the kid, right, no matter what. Now, your question is an interesting <laughs> question and a very common question. What if the child is not halakhically Jewish because the mother is not Jewish, but the father is Jewish, and let's assume in this intermarried couple there's a strong Jewish identity, which there might be, even though the child's not Jewish, but he, may think, he or she may think of themselves as Jewish. Uh, both parents want the kid to have a Jewish education. What, uh, right? I'm the principal of a school. What do I do? That's a real question. That, 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 that's a question that arises every day, literally every day in America, at least, not so much in Israel. And uh, the schools are divided over this. Some schools say, listen, we are open to Jews, and we will take in Jews. Child's not Jewish. Others have a kind of a, a rule that basically says that if the mother is thinking of converting, if she's involved in the process of conversion, you know, we'll Even take the child in. Conversion? No, no, orthodox, orthodox conversion. Orthodox conversion. Others will kind of say, I'll tell you a nice, a funny story about this. Others will say. Uh, even if the mother will not convert, but if the child will undergo a conversion, we will give the child a year or two to be familiar with halacha, and then if the child converts, we'll keep him. If he's not ready, he or she is not ready, we will not, they'll have to leave. Now, this provisional acceptance can sometimes backfire. I'll give you an actual case. An actual case. I was involved in only at the end of it. Uh, Jewish guy marries non-Jewish woman. Uh, the woman never had an Orthodox conversion. She had uh, a Reform conversion, but luckily it wasn't valid. But they raised their daughter Jewish, and they wanted her to go to a day school. So the day school accepted her on the condition that the daughter be, be ready to have an Orthodox conversion in two years. They accepted her in the first grade, and if she wasn't ready to be converted by third grade, she'd have to leave. But you know, she's in the school already, so everybody forgot about this requirement. So she stays third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, it's high school also, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade, she's gonna graduate high school. All of a sudden, some principal realizes, oh gee, you know, she's stumped, she's not Jewish. We're gonna have someone who's gonna graduate our school who's not Jewish. But the bigger problem was, she was the Hebrew valedictorian of the school. Mm -hmm. uh, meaning to say, uh, she was the best Torah student in the school. But she was not Jewish. <laughs> I mean, how can we give her a diploma from the Hebrew Academy of so-and-so to a non-Jew? So they were going crazy. Would, would she convert now, etc.? You know, is, is she Orthodox? You know, we can't convert if she's not Orthodox, etc. The end of the day was they converted her when she was a senior, uh, but it was really, really not clear if this was an orthodox, if she would be orthodox. 
But it has a happy ending. She actually became a very, very religious woman. Uh, she married, uh, she lives in Israel, and has, you know, a kosher home and everything. And her, her husband's in Kolo, I think. So these things can happen. Uh, so the big problem that schools have is they accept people and they impose these time limits. But once somebody's been in the school for two or three years, you know, it's very hard to say, oh, you've got to get out now. So they tend to just keep on going along. So it is, it is a difficult issue. But some schools do have a policy, 100%, we do not admit non-Jewish students, no matter what. But that's more justifiable than, than the other cases of the Jew from the intermarried uh, and the lesbian. Right? Because there you're excluding Jewish people, and obviously our primary responsibility is towards uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish students. Okay, so uh, we digressed a lot, but then this is, uh, so next time we're going to discuss, we're still fertility, a lot to talk about. We'll talk about in vitro fertilization, and we will talk about egg donation, and uh, we'll talk about surrogacy. Okay, those are the other types of technologies that are available. Okay, wish you all have a really good week. And Thank you. Oh, let's say um, <coughs> someone, like, uh, right. Right.